Welcome back to Here and There, the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. This is Günther and Audra hosting. Today we are talking with Claudia Clark, a U.S. expat presently living in Bavaria and joining us via Zoom. But before we actually get into the show, allow me to introduce Claudia Clark. This is the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. Welcome. Welcome. Where Germanic-speaking European countries... Germany. Deutschland. Switzerland. Blend with the Midwestern United States. Hello. We are here and there, and we invite you to come along on the journey. Claudia holds a Bachelor's of Arts degree in History and Public Policy from Michigan State University, and while at Michigan, she also served as president of the College Democrats and was active in Amnesty International, now that's N-O-W, and pro-choice groups. Claudia also holds an MA in Labor Industrial Relations from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a master's in U.S. history with an emphasis in women's history from San Jose State University, and a master's of social work from the University of Michigan with an emphasis in community organizing. Now, recently... Claudia and her husband moved from San Jose to Bavaria, Germany, where she is the National Get Out the Vote coordinator for the Democrats Abroad Germany chapter. Now, in this role, Claudia is responsible for helping to secure American Democratic expat voters living in Germany to cast their ballots from abroad. And in this incredible lineup of accomplishments, uh, Claudia is also the author of Dear Barack, The Extraordinary Partnership of Barack Obama and Angela Merkel. Now, notably, when this show was recorded, it was midnight in Germany. So, Claudia, welcome to Here and There. And also, thank you for staying up so late. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Claudia, before we dive into the book, the first question that I had in mind was, wait a minute, you moved from San Jose, California, eternal sunshine, to Bavaria. Did we at least welcome you with open arms and beer? Uh, well, yeah, and just just one quick um, just correction. It's a minor correction. We did move to originally. We did move to Bavaria. We are living in in Bavaria, but we, my husband and I, moved to Berlin in July. So um, almost four years in Bavaria, and and people ask me that all the time when I was in Bavaria. It's like, you know, du kommst aus aus California, warum Bayern, and I. I fell in love. I visited Germany in the first time in 1990 in Germany and then Salzburg, Austria. So I fell in love with the mountains. And I, I, when I visited, I was just like, I just remember saying, I'm going to live here someday. And um, circumstances just came about. My husband worked in, in um, Silicon Valley as an engineer, and he was just very, very burned out from the Silicon Valley, you know, 80, 90 hour work week that we needed a change of pace and a job opportunity just happened so I said why not let's do it and then you moved from Bavaria to Berlin which seems to be the hub that everybody flocks around right. we just had another interview with uh, two gentlemen now uh, also two expats uh, who also host a podcast they are also in Berlin uh, uh -huh. our um Director of Communications her sister lives in Berlin so there must be something that attracts Americans what is it 
Well, for me, it was a practical matter because uh, with Berlin being the capital, um, I, I didn't want to live in Berlin initially because I was afraid it was just too big. But uh, now that the book is done, I want to, I would like to do NGO or government type of work. And, you know, I thought Munich with, you know, with being the third largest city in Germany, that there would be some opportunity, knowing that most of it would either be in Berlin or Bonn. I was hoping that I could find something in, in Bavaria or in, in the Munich area, and I could not. So it was just, for me, it was a more practical um, matter to move, to make the move to Berlin. Um, you know, in, in three years, I looked for an NGO job, and I found one. There, you know, it just wasn't anything there for me. So it just made sense. So your current uh, position at Get Out the Boats uh, focuses that, on... That was a volunteer. Yeah, that was a volunteer? volunteer position. Okay. Yeah. But, but still, I uh, sort of, uh, the question that I have adjacent to that is, do you have a relative sense as to how many American expats actually are in Germany? Um, last I heard, I think there was probably, oh God, um, 10,000 maybe. It's, wow. it's still quite a few. Even with all the army bases closed, so Mo many. I shouldn't say all. A lot of them closed. Yeah. yeah. Now moving moving into the book, since you mentioned the book was published, basically you're focusing on the relationship of uh, two of the most, I would say, previously most uh, important people on the political landscape: uh, former President Obama and former, at this point, Chancellor Merkel. How yeah. how can we actually envision this relationship, and and how would it be summarizable? I suppose. Um, I think the, the 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 best way to, to summarize a relationship, if you could put it in like two sentences, is that they had profound amount of respect for one another. They they didn't, and I talk about this at length in the book. They don't often agree on a lot of political things, especially economic issues. They they kind of clash on, but they had so much respect for one another and their countries that they were they were able to put their differences aside for the, the better um, moving forward agendas for, for uh, democratic democracies across the world. But that would suggest that in the beginning, their relationship was perhaps a little bit strained, uh, perhaps a little contentious. <laughs> That's an understatement. Um, most people know this story, but but in 2008, Obama at that point was only a candidate. He hadn't even received the nomination to become, you know, the Democratic candidate for, for um, a president. And he wanted, or his campaign staff, it's kind of unclear who, but someone from his campaign thought it would be a good idea for, for Obama to speak before Brandenburg Gate, in front of Brandenburg Gate. And, um, and at that time, he was really, he had kind of a rock star status. You know, 85% of um, German citizens would have voted for him if they could have. Uh, the mayor of Berlin at the time, Klaus Wolverwright, loved him. You know, the French president, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, loved him. Everybody loved him, except the one person that didn't was Merkel. Merkel thought he was, uh, to put it bluntly or to put it in German terms, Obama, you know, Merkel thought Obama was full of himself. And she really didn't really want too much to do with them. And Obama was kind of offended by that. He was kind of a, he kind of took the attitude of, well, don't you know who I am? And how dare you tell me no? And, you know, Merkel kind of responded and said, yeah, well, I know exactly who you are. And that's why I'm telling you no. 
But over the, the interesting thing is over the course of their eight year working relationship, you went from two world leaders who were very, very reluctant and hesitant of one another at the very end in 2016, following the, the presidential election in uh, the United States, Obama made his final overseas trip as president. And he, you know, one of the people he went to see was Chancellor Merkel. And she cried when she said goodbye to Obama for the final time. Now, when you tell that to Germans, they, they look at you like you're crazy. And they're like, she did what? Because that is so uncharacteristic of her. And then in January of 2017, the very, uh, the very, very last phone call President Obama made before he officially left office was to Chancellor Merkel. So what this book does is it traces the relationship from how we went from two world leaders, very reluctant of one another to where they ended up eight years later. And all the ins and outs of the relationship, they had their ups and downs, they, they had their disagreements. And so I, so I talk about all of, all of those. And at the end, they, you know, they, despite all the differences that came out, the relationship was stronger before each scan, scandal or disagreement than it had been prior. Now, on, on the continuum of a developing relationship, usually there is one conduit that is perhaps the anchor point of changing a relationship. But do you know what that was? I do. <laughs> and I, I want to be careful about giving away too much because I want people to read the book. Oh, absolutely. But, um, <laughs> but, but a lot had to do with um, the fact that, that Merkel really thought that President Obama was all talk. You know, because she thought, you know, she was very skeptical of him because he could give a good speech and he could get 200,000 people to listen to him. But she didn't think that he could deliver. And very early in their relationship, um, she she realized that she could, that there was some merit to what Obama had promised with regard to um, the how to get the, the, the world back on track following the economic recession. And one thing that was that I found was really, really interesting, and I think this was one of the things that kind of worked in Obama's favor the entire time of his presidency, is that the United States has a reputation of being, you know, the most powerful and strongest uh, country in the world. And so they expected everybody kind of to cater to the United States and um, do what the United States wanted on their terms. And one thing that was very, very uh, interesting from the very beginning of their conversation, the very first conversation that the two of them had was Merkel's had, they'd had a, a call in January of 2009 and Merkel after the call told her staff, Obama actually listened to me. He didn't just, he didn't issue a set of demands. We, he, he listened to what I had to say and we talked and we had a conversation. He didn't just start shooting out demands. And, and so that was something that was really important. And then the other, the other thing that I think was really important with regard, very similar to that, was you know, as you may recall, there were the one big, big scandal in in their their course of the relationship was the Snowden allegations, where it was revealed that the Obama administration mm -hmm. was wiretapping people's um, personal cell phones, mm -hmm. including Chancellor Merkel's. And I just just so it's clear for the record, I make no excuses for him. He was wrong on that. But one of the things that was interesting was when the news broke and there was just a significant amount of problems over it. What the what Obama did was Obama put his chief of staff on a plane to Berlin and his chief of 
staff spent four hours talking with miracle chief staff over what had happened why what they were going to do to fix it and that was unusual because normally the united it was usually the the um Berlin, it's, it was the person on this side of the Atlantic that would be expected to to make the travel arrangements to to endure the trip and go to the United States. And so that there was a lot of negotiations that went back and forth over how how that scandal eventually calmed itself down. Things that we're never going to know that happened behind the scenes. And to say that that was the only thing that happened to to resolve that problem is is significantly under underlying um, the problem, but it did play a significant role. And I think that was something that, that Merkel appreciated. So from, from a metaphorical perspective, Goliath came to David, more or less, if you will. Mm-hmm. But the thing that stands out to me is, particularly in the beginning, you mentioned, uh, for instance, uh, former French President Sarkozy, who found Obama, let's just say, very appealing and uh, sort, sort of took a liking to his statementship. Uh, how is it possible that within relatively short order, I would suppose, that the relationship with Merkel has uh, sort of overcome and overgrown, if you will, the other relationships in Central Europe? You know, the interesting thing, this is something that I learned in the course of writing the book, was that Obama, he comes across as being someone who's very, very flamboyant. You know, he's a very, very gifted speaker, but he's very introverted. He does not like he doesn't like the one-on-one meetings and he doesn't, and he's just, it's just not his thing. He would much rather be at home with his family. And for whatever reason, um, he was very, very cool. Initially, he was very cold to Sarkozy. He was very cold to David Cameron. And for for whatever reason, and to the point where they, they talk about it now, like, well, what is it? Why is he, what does he not like about me? because he was he personified someone so different in person than he was in front of a crowd but but for miracle it was different and i think to a certain extent it goes both ways i think to a certain extent obama really respected miracle because she um she he he was intrigued by how someone who had been raised under you know the communist regime in the former, you know, Soviet-controlled East Germany. How someone could go from being held in, growing up in that kind of environment, to the leader of the of a free and united Germany. He, Obama, really, really, really uh, respected Merkel for that. And I also think that reverse on the reverse side, because of Merkel's uh, um, East German roots, she has more. Um, more faith i don't know if faith is the right word but she for her uh she would not have believed she were be in the position she was in were it not for the help from the united states so i think she put in forth in a little more effort to try and form a relationship with obama than perhaps the other two did because she because of her her um fondness and her um commitment to the mm-hmm. united states so I suppose that that functional relationship, now departing the economic crisis of uh, 09 and the recovery of the United States, the point including uh, the United States uh, engaging in continued warfare, but uh, one of the outcomes of the continued warfare was that uh, a lot of Afghanis uh, essentially had to flee their country. Now, the United States, I think, proportionally took on 
fewer refugees than mm. Germany. Yet Germany, and I think this was one of the main critique points uh, toward Angela Merkel, sort of kicked open the borders and welcomed in more refugees. At least this was the public perception. How did that? How did the relationship influence that? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, you're right. Um, I, I talk about this in the book that in 2016, uh, the Germany was needed someone to help co-sponsor their Hanover Technology Fair. You know, it's a technology fair that they've had in Hanover every year since the end of World War II. And every year a country helps co-sponsor it. And Miracle in 2016, um, Miracle asked Obama to help co-sponsor it. And on the surface, it looks like it, you know, it made sense for the United States to help co-sponsor it because it's a big country. The United States had never done it before. And it would be a good opportunity for them to um, show the partnership between the two countries. So on the surface level, that all makes sense. But I do believe that there, there were a couple of underlying reasons why Miracle had specifically asked Obama that year to help co-sponsor it. One of them has to do with the Syrian refugee crisis because 2015 was a very, very difficult year for, for Miracle. She was in trouble or politically, not just in Germany, but with the other EU countries for her open door policy. And she really needed some backup and she needed support. And then the other reason uh, that she was in a lot of trouble politically in 2015 was because of Putin. Uh, you know, after Putin had illegally annexed Crimea, all the, the countries joined together to issue sanctions against Russia. But at this point in time, it was starting to financially impact the other countries of, of uh, Europe as well as Germany and she was a lot of countries were pressuring her to lift the sanctions because it was negatively inf influencing them and Merkel was very firm saying no we can't do this Putin needs to be held accountable and if we if we lift these sanctions then he'll think he got away with it and worse yet he could go after the Baltics so there were so when Obama was called to Hanover in 2016, in April 2016, he, in front of all of Europe, he, he gives this big speech about, um, about the refugee crisis. And he just says, look, as democratic institutions, this falls on all of us. It is to, when people need to flee their country for political reasons, we owe it to others to help them. And he, and then he says, don't, you know, don't, it's unfair to expect one country to, to handle all the burden. We all must handle it. And I'll admit, I, I don't let Obama off the hook because he, while he was saying that, he was he was talking about what a wonderful thing it was that Merkel had done this and other countries needed to step in and do their fair shake. Well, Germany had let in over a million refugees at that point. The United States had only allowed 10,000 refugees to come in. So there is a big disconnect mm -hmm. and I don't, I call him on that. And, and that's the one thing that I, I hope is clear in the book is that I have a lot of respect for both of them, but when, when they're wrong on something, for example, the spying scandal, I will call, I, I just, I do call them and say, look, you know, it's, it's nice for you to say this, but why can, you know, it would have been nice for the United States if they could have done more as well. So to, to jump on the idea of, of uh, disproportionate acceptance, uh, 
Germany accounts for roughly 80, 81, 82 million residents, give or take. Uh, the U.S., uh-huh. 325 million. At that point in time, 10,000 refugees uh, to the United States and over 1 million to Germany. Now, this is, I would perceive this to be at least an extreme political risk. What do you, what do you assume Merkel's motivation was behind that outside of uh, just being socially responsible and perhaps really wanting to open the doors for those who needed the most? But this could have very easily been political suicide. Why do this? I, I, I think there, there are a couple of reasons. Um, one was, you know, people often forget this, but she was the daughter of a of a Lutheran minister, so she so she has the the compassion part. She didn't. You don't see it very often because she's usually very very stoic and very emotionless. But she she saw that, so so she's got that, and she, I think she also. From a humanitarian standpoint, I think she really thought that Germany could handle the influx of refugees that come come in. And to her to her defense, other countries, Italy, for example, had promised that they would assist, and then they fell short. And so she was left kind of scrambling. And there are people that there are people that think the defining moment for her was when she saw that that picture of of the three-year-old that was washed off and drowned in the middle Mm -hmm. of of the sea and she happened to be um you know she had she saw that clip she saw the clip of the the train station in hungary where people were being shuffled from one place to the other and while she was work while she lived in um germany east germany at that time that was the hungary was one of the few places she was allowed to travel and so that kind of brought back a flood of memories for her and so it was uh this is the humane thing to do people have the right to right to be free i think we can do this i don't think i don't think this is going to negatively impact negatively hurt us and i think what happened was for her for the first time you know she's a scientist for the first time in her life she thought with her heart and not her head and she made the decision without um trying to make sure that they could be accommodated. And I think people were just kind of surprised by that. But I, I I do think that she really, really expected other countries to follow her lead. And unfortunately, no, nobody did. And she she ended up was left ended up stranded. Which I find incredibly interesting, because when we consider American politics and the American political representational landscape, if you will, there's just a lot of corporate influence. And to actually get, uh, for instance, kick open the door and welcome one million refugees, I think borders on, on, on the impossible. Yeah. But at the same time, when, when you mentioned Merkel's, particularly the upbringing as the daughter of a minister, is there perhaps the accusation in there that she imposed her will upon the Germans by wanting to be seen as the savior? Yeah, the, um, especially from the people in the former DDR, there is a lot of, she she took a lot of uh, flack for that. And there's a lot of controversy and, and a lot of people, there was a lot of speculation that she used her, her upbringing and her religious beliefs to inf- inflict on the rest of other people. And that was, and she took, the, uh, the AFD, the, the the year following this is when the AFD started to pick up a little momentum. And a lot of it had to do with her, her position in the refugee crisis. We've had a podcast not too long ago, a 
right after the, actually before and after the election. Uh, how do you perceive uh, the outcome of that election, particularly now with Merkel no longer being in the driver's seat? How has that influenced Germany so far? And then adjacently, how has the relationship changed with Obama? Uh, well, I think, you know, I, cause I'm not a German citizen and I can't vote. So I need to, I, I try to be kind of neutral on this, but, um, I could see from, cause we've been in Germany since 2017. So we were here just before the, the federal election in 2017 and just the way the, the election was going in that year and in, in the state elections in the subsequent years, it was very, very clear that the Germans wanted change. And 16 years of one person in power, especially one political party in power, is a long time. So I, I wasn't surprised that that Merkel or the CDU. It looks like the CDU lost. We won't know for certain until probably next week, but it, it's looking like that. So I wasn't surprised at all. The only thing that surprised me, to be truthful, is that the election was as close as it was. Because seeing what when you were looking at the other election results in the past few years, the the both the the Greens and the the alt right, like the AFD, they were both getting momentum at both the state level and the federal. And so it was clear that the that the Germans are not particularly happy with the mainstream two part two main parties with the CDU and SPU. So it looked like people wanted to change. So I I'm not surprised by the outcome. What I am surprised is that it was as close as it was. I, I really thought it was going to be I don't want to say a landslide, but I I expected it to be a lot, um, a lot more. I, you know, I figured we would have had a winner two or three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. But so inevitably, uh, Angela Merkel is no longer the chancellor, and I think obviously with uh, former President Obama also no longer being in the center of the political spotlights. Uh, do you know anything of, uh, about their relationship right now? Has it changed? I don't. And that's that's the question I get asked on every single interview. And that's the one question I, I wish I knew the answer to. I have my suspicions that because that that they still communicate with one another. And I suspect I would have loved to have heard them communicate during the, the um, Trump administration because it, it was not a surprise to anyone that, that Trump and America did not get along with one another. And I would have loved to have heard heard them communicate with one another or Obama and Merkel about about Trump but I, I don't know um but I, I I and that's the one thing that I would like to do um is is write a second edition mm -hmm. and one of the things I would like to do in a second edition is get some follow-up to find out if in fact they did have conversations and what kind of relationship they maintained. I do know of one time, uh, President Obama, I think it was 2018, 2019, Obama was in, he made a visit to Colm for a, a political visit. And then he, I know he flew from Colm to Berlin and had a meeting with, with Merkel then. But post that, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, President Obama was noticeably quiet uh, throughout the four years of the Trump administration. Uh, I think almost disturbingly quiet, considering the many calls that I've seen on social media for 
Obama to make some form of statement or perhaps have some form of impact as to what's going on here. Um, but now following Obama's footsteps and Trump's footsteps, President Biden, is there a reasonably similar relationship to be expected uh, from Biden to the hopefully soon to be declared administration of Germany? I hope so. Uh, I think one, you know, the United States and Germany have been, for the most part, um, have been, had been close allies for a long, long time. And uh, I know there was some speculation that Europe was losing some of that to Asia during that Obama administration. And so Obama was trying really hard to kind of um, um, calm the fears and say that Europe is still a valuable partner. But, in, you know, Trump all but destroyed that. Um, and I know that President Biden has promised that he would restore relationships. Uh, what what I'm a little worried about is I know that, that Germany and the United States have a couple of issues just uh, with regards to China and with in human rights issues. Because I know that um, China is a very, very big, important training partner with, with Europe. And the United States isn't real happy about their policy and human rights violations. So there's that issue. And there's the issue with the Baltic, with the, the um, Baltic Sea under the, the nuclear power with, with Russia. But I understand, I read something earlier today that there's talk that that has been discontinued. But don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure, but I do know that, that those were kind of the two issues that the, that the two were concerned about. But I don't, Trump did a lot of damage to the relationship between the United States and Europe. And I think it's going to take a long time for that to be repaired. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that there's so much chaos going on in the United States right now that Obama, or, um, Biden's focus still has to remain on domestic, the domestic front, that he may not have the time to, to mend the fences in Europe like he promised and like Europeans are so anxious for him to do. So it took Obama and Merkel eight years to learn to work with one another. So it, it's, it, you know, we're already one year into Obama's or Biden's presidency. So it, it's hard to say what's gonna happen in the, in the next coming years. Like Biden has, he he's already, done his part to a certain extent. You know, he, one of the first things he did was he put the United States back in the Paris Climate Accord. He, at the G, G, um, or at the climate conference in Glasgow last week, he apologized to the world for what Trump had done during the climate. So I, so I think he's making some moves, but I'm hoping that the Europeans are going to be a little patient and, and understand that there's a lot going on, but I think it's just going to be a waiting game. Do you think that uh, President Biden had a bit of an upper hand, though, coming in because he ar had already acted as vice president and he may or may not have had some sort of established relationship with Angela Merkel already? So do you, do you think that he came in probably a bit better than most? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. I have seen, because um, I did try and research what kind of relationship he and Merkel had when he was vice president, and I didn't find a lot, but um, there were a lot of pictures that of them together, um, and so I, and because Biden worked, campaigned on trying to not just fix Obama's, or Trump's, what Trump had done, but to carry on Obama's legacy, I 
think that will that will help to a certain extent move things forward. I know that um, one of the the reasons I I really think that Biden will be okay is is that I I really don't think that that Trump did not respect women, and and I think that played a large role in why he and Merkel didn't get along, but why why. Um, Obama and Merkel did get along is because Obama did respect women. And so I think that going in, I think will will definitely help Biden. I, I, he's not willing to just throw, dismiss her because he, you know, he does, he didn't come in day one and, and tell her that all of her policies were, were ludicrous. And he didn't give her a bill for, I forget, 320 billion euros for the cost of defending, you know, Germany's cost for defending NATO. So I think he's he's more passionate and less combative. So that in of itself, I think, will, will make things a lot easier. My apologies for my barking dog. <laughs> <laughs> that that is the beauty of Zoom recordings. Uh, it you get yeah. you get the full lowdown of everything that goes on in the background. Uh, while yeah. Audra is uh, throwing a small little squeaky toy at her wiener dog. I do have one question uh, really quick while uh, Audrey is composing herself to ask the next question. Um, as far as as far as the, the Trump administration is concerned and the way Europeans have perceived it, me being European myself, I had numerous conversations, of course, with my, with my people, so to speak, and uh, I did get sort of the impression as to what uh, my folks were thinking. But the one thing that I am uh, completely green end, so to speak, is whether you as an expat in Germany have felt some form of uh, influence or impact of the Trump relationship with Germany personally. Has it affected you in any which way? Yeah, um, I, I, I try to be a little careful because I don't want to get too political about this book. But, um, but one of the main reasons that we left when we did was because because of Trump. And I, I would, um, you know, we had, my husband and I had wanted to move to Germany anyway, but we wanted to wait until my, my German is lousy. And I wanted to wait until my German was better. But when, when Trump happened, it just it was like, get me out of here now. And so when, when I first moved to Bavaria, people were, were asking me like, why, why Bavaria. And so I would just say Trump is next year. And then I get, oh, all is clear. <laughs> you know? And, and, but, um, and I would, there were, there would be times on, I would be on the street where Trump, the, the day, for example, when Trump decided to move the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, um, in Israel to Jerusalem, I had three different people asking me why he did that because it was a dumb idea. And I, I don't know any, you know, I'm not, I'm that outside my scope. I'm not, you know, I'm not a Middle East yeah. expert, but, and so, but people would be, you're an American and he speaks for you. He did something that we think is wrong. Why did he do it? And I would just have to say, they snaked, you know, I, I don't know. And I, and it got to the point where there were times when I would hide my passport because I, because I was afraid, you know, there are times where we, when I was in Munich, um, we would, we would go to protests and such, and we would be going through the Hoffenhof in, in Munich, and I would be embarrassed to be carrying the American flag with, that was, 
that was kind of how, how hard it was. And once, you know, people told us that the one thing about Bavaria is they don't like outsiders. And I found that all I had to do was say, I didn't like Trump and I had a new best friend. You know, I, it, it really kind of broke the ice and I didn't want to, you know, it's hard for me because I, I don't, I didn't, I wanted to rather concentrate on why I, why I decided to move to Germany instead of all the problems with the United States. But for whatever reason, the Germans were just, you know, they, they hear all these fairy tales, especially about California, about how wonderful the United States is and how wonderful California is. And they're just like, and why would you give that all up to come here? And, and so I would, you know, I, I would just tell them, look, you know, you've seen too much TV, you know, California is very, 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 very expensive. And, you know, it's not, it's not all Hollywood and it's not all, you know, but there's, I said, you know, I'm a history major. I wanted to be able, I wanted to see more of Germany than Berlin or more of France than, than Paris. And the opportunity came and then they were so, they would start asking me questions. I was volunteering. Um, I was teaching at a refugee center. I was helping kids learn English. And my very first day, a 12 year old in perfect English asked me if, if Trump were gonna build a wall between the United States and Mexico. And I'm just like, I, like, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I answered him, I don't know, because I didn't want to get into a discussion yeah. with the 12 year old, but. But what I'm hearing in this, and this uh, to some degree makes me happy, if you will, is that you didn't necessarily feel as that you were dismissed because of uh, your your uh, citizenship, but that you mostly received critical questions or inquiry as to why certain things are the way that they are because you're American and perhaps you have a deeper understanding. Right. Yes. Exactly. And and I th I think. Um, people were, I think it was more initial, the first, in, the first question was always, well, why did you come to Germany? First, usually it's Bavaria, but sometimes it was Germany. And then I would just say why. And then people, the first question was always curious. And then when I told them the real reasons, they're like, oh, okay. And then I would get a lot of, you know, in my broken German, they would ask me, then they would, when I would say because of Trump, but then they would ask me, well, can Obama run, be president or why can't Obama be president again? And so in my broken German, I'm trying to explain to them why he can't be president again. And then the next question was always, how did you go from Obama to this, this guy? And then I'm, you know, and that was kind of always um, the, the segue on how things went. And it's interesting because I, I have conversations with other American friends across Germany, and they all say the same thing. They always got the, how did, why can't Obama be president again? How did you guys go from Obama to, to Trump? And it, it was just because it is beyond what Germans could understand. So we've talked about the, the impact of Trump and the, we're still figuring out the impact of Biden on Germany, but the one president that we haven't talked about that had a relationship with Merkel, uh, a professional one, is President Bush. Um, and if I'm correct, they had a notoriously pretty good relationship, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. Like, they were friendly. They had, she visited him he, uh, in the U.S., and he visited her in her hometown, and it was all good. So, I mean, I mean, how would you compare her relationship to Bush to then the weird tension when Obama came in. What what was that? What I think you're right. She and unlike her European colleagues, 
she had a very good relationship with President Bush. And, um, and it, interesting relationship with President Bush. And um, I think part of the problem that, that Miracle had with, with Obama was that Miracle really expected uh, Hillary Clinton to win. She was really kind of surprised that Obama had won and she wanted Hillary Clinton to win. And so, so there was that added tension but part of the, the part of the problem that Merkel had with Obama initially, besides what we talked about a, a little while ago, with was her own apprehensions about him, was that Merkel liked President Bush. She had a lot of respect for him. They got along very well. The rest of the Europeans and the, the Germans did not like President Bush. And she was a, she knew she had to walk a fine line because she knew how popular Obama was among the Germans. And she was very skeptical of him and she was trying to figure out did the germans just like obama because anybody was better than bush or was there something in him that they saw that she didn't see that she was very skeptical of so while she and i think because she knew how overwhelmingly popular obama was and how unpopular bush was she had to she she walked the fine line, you know, she knew she had to, when Obama was elected, she had to congratulate him, she had to work with him. But it was in, in the initial kind of beginning, their first meeting in London, it was kind of the headlines kind of, ran, um, she had a, an interview with the New York Times and the headline of, the, of that article was, Merkel is set to meet and then um, defeat President Obama because she was ready to shoot down every single economic idea he had had. And so it's it's hard to tease out how much of it of of her skepticism of Obama was because he was the antithesis of her. He was this vibrant, well well spoken man who just just flashed, you know, and he could bring people to their knee, the, their feet because of their speeches and complete opposite of who she was. And so she had to kind of, she had to figure out how can I work? I'm going to have to work with this man. How, but how do I do it without being disloyal to President Bush? But how do I, but how do I do it without being disloyal to myself too. And as she, Obama had to work really hard to prove himself to her and he did so. And I think she she slowly let, let down her guard and, and realized that despite their differences in persona, they, they had, and, um, and even on policy issues, they had they were more similar than either one of them wanted to admit. They both had similar approaches to solving problems. They were both you know the the media likes to refer to Obama as no drama Obama, whereas the the German media always likes to call refer to Merkel as her poker face. So they were they whether they wanted to admit it or not, they were fairly similar to one another. And so it took her a while, but she was able to get to break through that. And Obama, because he had so much respect for Merkel, he was able to break break down that barrier too. And the one thing that I do argue in the book is, is that because of Merkel's East German roots, I think she was more willing 
she she's more uh, she has more affection and more patience for the Americans than I think than anyone than you know whether whether it's the French president the UK prime minister or the Italian she really really while she may not have agreed with Bush on things like Guantanamo Bay she she was willing to kind of look the other way because she knew he was an American and thanks to the Americans, she was in her position. So she was able to kind of work that to her advantage. There are two things particularly to unpack here. One of which is that the relationship perspective seems to be very much personality driven in the sense that Merkel found a liking to Bush and then it took some time to develop the same and perhaps even stronger relationship with Obama. But in in neither instance have I really heard the word politics surface all that much, but it was more along the lines of can I actually get on with that person personally, and the decision was framed on that. And secondarily, and this is the other thing that strikes me as uh, also knee-jerky un-American, is that you said that Obama actually proved himself to... Angela Merkel. And this is generally something that the American disposition does not suggest as the modus operandi in a sense that I'm going to prove myself to you because I am the giant in the room, therefore you're coming to me. And we've heard this twice now in a sense that he proved himself and he sent a representative over to explain the phone hacking and what have you. So twice now. I, I think one of the things Obama realized when he took office was that Bush... Um, damaged America's reputation overseas and w- with the with the wars. And I think Obama knew he needed to restore that. That that was kind of the first on his on his so I think that was part of it. And that was a big, big part of it. Um and I I I do think that um I do think that Obama really, really, like I said, I, th- I think he he respected Miracle so much that he he knew that she was going to be his his challenge. That he, she was the one that wasn't. She was the of all the European leaders at the time. She was the one that was kind of holding back and wasn't wasn't kowtowing to him. And it was kind of a mixed blessing because on one hand it's like, well, why aren't you? Because I, what's wrong with you? But on the other hand, I think he kind of respected her for, for that. And he actually, even in his latest book, he talks about that. Well, he he realized that Sarkozy was more of a friend to him. He realized early on that Merkel was more of a partner, would be more of a partner. And they they I think a lot of it is they challenged each other. Obama and Merkel challenged each other. They were on the same level uh, intellectually. And they they could be honest with one another and upfront with one another. Right. And I think another way that maybe Obama tried to win her over or show that he respected her based on what I've read and seen is the whole Presidential Medal of Freedom thing. That was back in 2011. And if I have my timeline correct, that was sort of before they became like good the relationship wasn't quite strong yet so I mean besides wooing her maybe in a sense and showing that he respected her what do you think that symbolized that that 
Medal of Freedom, I think was, and, and I argue this in the book, I think it was a turning point of the relationship. And then when I do, when I do these book discussions, I'll, I'll talk about why I wrote the book and how I, the, the criteria that I use for writing the book. And then um, I use that chapter uh, as the, as the, I read an excerpt from that chapter. And the reason I read an excerpt from that particular chapter, because it, it is right, 2011, it's right in the middle. And it's because everything, comes together at this point. This is when uh, they begin referring to one another it, as Angela and Barack instead of Chancellor Merkel and, and, and President Obama. This is when Merkel begins referring to Obama as Lieber Barack for the very first time. So hence the, the name of the book. But so it's there. It is you can see it there. Merkel's husband, you know, the, the German media loves to refer to him as Phantom of the Opera because you never see him publicly except when he, but I can pinpoint him because he, he was at the Medal of Freedom ceremony with her. He was at Obama's, uh, Brandon, or, um, yeah, Brandenburg Gate speech. So, so you can see that. Um, so the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award is the highest award um, a president can grant a, a non or a civilian and one granted very rarely to U.S. citizens. However, um, Obama granted that to Merkel and there are people that thought that it was political. They thought that he was doing it because he wanted something political from her. And I, I don't agree with that. He really, I believe, had a lot of respect for how someone who had grown up under the demise of a communist country could become a chancellor of a free and united Germany. And he, that was given to her in 2011. It was presented to her in 2011. And from every meeting from there on out, he talks about it, he brings it up. And yeah, skeptics can say he did it because he was, you know, he, he kept, mentioning it because he was bragging about it but i really i think it was because that was the most honorable thing he could do for her and he wanted the world to know it he was proud of it and in fact the last a couple of weeks ago there has there was a video that that he shot that that um where he he tells people that he wanted to join the rest of the world in saying congratulations to chancellor Merkel and thank you for everything she's done and then even in that one minute, 45 second video, he talks about how he gave her that Medal of Freedom Award. So I think that's one of, I might be being a little hyperbolic and a little prejudiced here, but I do think that, that the Medal of Freedom Award that he granted to Chancellor Merkel was probably one of the things he was proudest of in his presidency. Meanwhile, I did uh, locate your book uh, on Amazon actually. Uh -huh. And uh, you have 10 five-star ratings. So for whoever is listening to us, if that gives you any more indication that you should really read this book, uh, there is your proof, your social proof, if you will. But um, most importantly, I suppose, uh, two questions, uh, one of which was, where, where can we get the book in the U.S. on Amazon? Are there any other sources as well? Yeah, if you, if you go to my website, which is claudiaclarkauthor.com, there's a button that you can push and it'll give you places where you can order you can or obviously you can order it on amazon you can order it from barnes and noble 
you the ISBN is also listed on the website, so you can go to your local bookstore and you should be able to order it anywhere. And you can also order the the German edition as well. The German edition came out in the beginning of September, and that is called Librebarak, same title, just translated, mm -hmm. and different different title or different cover, but. There's also on the German side of my website, there's a place where you can purchase the German edition as well. How do you actually go about writing such a book? Uh, what is the, the research requirement behind this? And how long has it even taken you to amass everything to get to a substantial book that has obviously really great feedback? Um, well, with regard to the, the, the research I'm a, my mother and most of her friends were librarians, so I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I did this without stepping foot in a library, but you know, <laughs> you got to love the internet, but what I would do is I, for the intro, for the, I wrote one chapter on the, bi on their biographies, and so I used a lot of the five, the biographies that were written about Miracle and Obama already, mm -hmm. um, the, I don't know if you can see it, the, the Matthew Kovic, Kovchuk Angela Miracle book. I used that a lot. Um, I used all of Obama's um, autobiographies. So I used those sources for the, the biography section. And because a lot of uh, the book, when I'm talking about the relationship, a lot of it is based on their interactions with one another. Mm -hmm. One of the points that I like to make is that Obama helped humanize Miracle. For example, they they visited uh, Buchenwald, a former concentration camp in, in Germany, and Miracle cried when she stood at the grounds with, with President Obama. Um, and then they were in Kroon before a G7 summit, and they were it was orchestrated where they were supposed to have uh, breakfast with the local residents of the village and before the event happened Merkel introduced President Obama and Obama comes up to the the crowd and he's like gross good everyone and you know the crowd goes crazy because he's speaking what they think is boorish and Merkel just giggles and she laughs and just it's a side of her that you don't see and uh, that so what I would do, what I did for most of the research was that both the White House archives and the Bundestag, they, for every press conference or public meeting that the two of them had, they would release a, a printout. So it would be exactly what was said. And then what I would do is I would read the printout and then I would go to the Washington, I would go to YouTube's and I would look at the Washington mm -hmm. White House archives and I would watch the, the, um, the video and I would compare the video to the, the transcript that I had mm -hmm. in front of me to make sure it was accurate. Mm -hmm. And then I would, when there was, because the, the video I could, when there was a smile or something that they, they exchanged, I could see that on the video whereas I couldn't see that from the printout. Right. And I wanted to do what I could to the readers so that the readers could be in that place as much as I could. So they could be right there watching them. Um, so I, that was another component that I did. And then I also, I, I thought it was really important that people knew what was going on on both sides of the Atlantic. So when Obama was in Germany or in, it was usually Germany, but if he happened to be in Europe for, for some other event, I would look at what the, what was their Spiegel saying about it? What was the Süddeutsche Post reporting? What, what was Washington? 
Washington Post saying, what was the LA Times saying? And conversely, when Miracle was in, in Washington, I would do the same thing. I would look at what the newspapers were saying and on both sides. And I tried, because I am an unknown author, I knew I was afraid I was going to get in trouble for not having a lot of like firsthand narrative between the two of them. So I, I did my best to make sure it was as thoroughly researched as I could. And I have, I, I quote Fox News at one point. I have an article from the Irish Times. I, in addition to Der Spiegel, in addition sure. to you know the Los Angeles Times, I, I, I have you know 100 pages of references because I really wanted to make sure this was. If I, I figured if I'm going to be criticized for the book, I want it to be for legitimate reasons, not because there's something in that's not factual yeah. in there. Most importantly, and that's the question that I ask every expat, uh, everyone who's in Germany for longer, uh, before I usually wrap the show is, would you be moving back to the U.S.? No, no. Well, that was solid and direct and, uh, and fast. Okay. Uh, of course, follow-up question on that. Uh, why not? Uh, a lot of reasons. Um, one, one of Trump was a symptom of what was wrong in America. There's a lot going on that's wrong with America. Uh, my, like I, I mentioned briefly, my husband, he worked in Silicon Valley for uh, 10 years, 20 years actually. And he worked 80, 90 hour weeks with three weeks of, of Vicky PTO time a year. And that was all. Yeah. And so he got burned out very, very quickly. So the pace of life is a lot different over here. I, I, for many, many years before we actually moved, I felt like I was as if I were an outsider in my own country. Mm -hmm. I, I was on social media and I, I was supporting the Affordable Care Act and I was getting death threats from people. And I don't, I didn't take them seriously because you know, anyone can do anything on the internet, but it was just the, the such the contrast. And I just didn't feel here. I, I think that healthcare is a basic human right. And people are, are threatening me because of that kind of thing. And I like being able to go to Oktoberfest, not have to worry about an active shooter drill kind of thing. So there's, there's a lot of things. Um, I just think the United States has a lot of problems. And unfortunately, I, the, the saddest thing I think though, is, is I don't think we could go back because both my husband in the last, um, two weeks or last two months, my husband was diagnosed with cancer and he's undergoing treatment. And so we both have a pre-existing conditions. I'm not sure we could go back to the United States and get health insurance. Very so, sorry to hear that, of course. Um, so, and, and that's kind of hard to, to understand, you know, hard to accept, but. So you mentioned the, the right for healthcare and the right to be taken care of. And of course, particularly now with your husband's cancer diagnosis and the availability of care, the cost center of care, the question usually turns to the quality of care. And the American argument frequently is that European healthcare, German, UK, what have you, due to the fact that it is socialized healthcare, that it is available to anyone, is not as effective, is not as high in quality and standards as the care that one can attain in the United States. What, what's your position on that? Uh, 
I, I'll start with myself first, but uh, when we were in Munich, I, um, when there's, I have uh, chronic migraines uh, to the point where in the United States, I had 15 neurologists give up on me and say, I just don't know what to do with you. And I was on 75 different medications. It would take me, so I was seeing before, at one point or another, when doctors said, you know, it just isn't working. I was seeing a very specialized doctor in, um, in Stanford, at Stanford. It would take me a year to get an appointment to see him. And that was a 20 minute appointment. And here, when I was in Munich, I, I saw, he was the doctor I saw in Munich was a referral from my doctor in Stanford. Same, so she was a professor, she was a doctor, she had a clinic. I could get appointments with her within two weeks. Uh, same medication. And interestingly, the same medication that they gave me in the United States that didn't work, works over here in Germany. Why, we haven't figured out why, but I, I'm not spending half my life yelling and screaming at the doctors because they're refusing to cover something for me. So that's just bogus. And then for, for my husband, he was, he went in to see his his house house arts um, his his primary care doctor over over his his the the tumor which was on his back and the doctor looked at it and said okay this needs to be seen by a surgeon I'm sending you right now he had it looked at this was the end of July end of mid to end of July the doctor took a look at it that day and said I'm sending you for surgery tomorrow, I'm, I'm taking this out. And it was a dermatologist or it was a, a main doctor. So he didn't know what it was, mm -hmm. but it turned out it was cancerous and he was in the hospital to have the rest of the surgery two and a half weeks later. So it's, that's just bogus. And when I was in the hospital for, I had meningitis as a a problem because of my med my migraine medication. I was in the hospital 11 days. I got a bill for 110 euros for, for my 11 days in the hospital. <laughs> and believe me, that was all over social media. Like for those of you complaining about how bad the healthcare system is, and I'm not even a citizen and I get this kind of healthcare. Well, in, in, in contrast, I do have uh, for American standards, incredible health insurance. And my MRI bill for my right knee just came back at $221. So just uh, the gravity of, of the contrast for one uh, outpatient, quick little scan, if you will, versus you having stayed in the hospital. And then actually your charge is by far lesser than, uh, than my charge. It, it really speaks a lot in favor of uh, the German, UK, Austrian, Finnish, uh, Central European healthcare system. And I think the longer we object to uh, introducing such a system broadly in the US, uh, the longer we're going to have problems. Well, yeah. And I was, uh, for a while in, in, in the Silicon Valley, I was a case manager for a homeless shelter. And 60% of our clients were homeless because of medical bills because they went bankrupt because of medical bills. So something needs to be done. It's just, and that's that's one of the main reasons I don't think I could go back to the States. Claudia, I think we need to invite you back because the homelessness discussion is something that we need to explore in depth because what we know as homeless here doesn't quite exist in the same fashion in Europe. So for yeah. today, 
<laughs> Let's cut this. Let me thank you okay. very, very much for being here and for staying up so late and just indulging our questions. Um, again, this is uh, Claudia Clark, the author of Dear Barack, The Extraordinary Partnership of Barack Obama and Angela Merkel, to be found at claudiaclarkauthor.com or at most of the book outlets. Claudia, once again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Audra as well, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Now, this is, of course, the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. This is here and there. This is Gunther signing off. We'll be talking with you again soon. <laughs>